Now, you've probably found your Bible by now. You may even have found the book of Esther, which we are studying. And I want to start this uh, study here this morning with a little game. And like most of life, the older you are, the bigger advantage you have. Everybody agree with that? Anybody saying amen in their hearts? (laughs) Go old people, (laughs) which I are one. Okay. (laughs) This little game is going to go something like this. Going to read some famous quotes. All of them are from one individual. Listening carefully to the quotes will give some huge hints. If you're a history buff, that's going to help you a little bit along the way. All right, so we're going to read a few quotes, four to be exact, and uh, take a listen to these quotes, these clues that are within. And uh, one hint is again, uh, you know, if you're older, you've got a more high, uh, much higher chance of knowing who this is. So here's the first one. Here it is. I would say to the House, as I have said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Anybody got it yet? Anybody, anybody? Quote number two. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Well, there's a way with words. Anybody, anybody? Quote number three, never give in, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large, or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and on the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. Anybody, anybody, anybody. Winston. Anybody knows middle name for extra points? You could win up to $1 million. If you can tell me his middle name, it's got two of them. Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. (laughs) You know what is so amazing about this guy? I mean, I don't know if you've you've, uh, seen any old movies or or studied history at all. I mean, look at this guy, you know. He's got the big cheeks and the giant cigar. And the guy had a way with words. You know, once Lady Astor looked at him and he said, you're drunk. And he says, uh, I may be drunk, but you're ugly. And in the morning, I'll be sober, but you'll still be ugly. <laughs> and she once retorted to him, if you were my husband, I'd poison your breakfast. To which he responded, if I were your husband, I'd eat it. <laughs> what a guy, I'll tell you, leading uh, uh, Europe there, uh, the, you know, the, Prime Minister of, uh, of the UK. They, uh, it's, it's amazing, this guy's leadership in the world at a dangerous time. And you know what's even more amazing, as quotable as this guy is? What is really amazing about this is something you didn't even know about him. And that is this. Every one of those little quips, little retorts, little, uh, little sayings that uh, the, the, the internet is full of, We're all worked on ahead of time. I'm not talking about just his speeches. I'm talking about any kind of possible response to anything he might face in people's questions or statements. And the reason he did it 
is because he stuttered horribly. He had this speech impediment that he would never ever out of fear be caught stumbling and bumbling through an answer, knowing that the cost of, of people doubting his abilities could cost them the war. And what is really astounding about this, and friends, you cannot miss this, is the very reason that he was so effective in his position was because the greatness of his weakness in this regard. Think about that. What was his weakness? What was certainly a vulnerability to him became one of his greatest strengths. It's important to think on this. He's not the only one in history to live that out. We're going to begin in our study here today in chapter 2 of the book of Esther, finding someone in difficult and dark circumstances. And maybe we don't have to look to the Bible to, to find one of those people, perhaps just around the room. Some enormous obstacles, some on the outside, some on the inside. And maybe we, we haven't even got to the conversation of how God could possibly use us because we're wondering whether or not we have any value at all with all of the stuff that comes with us. And that's why it's so remarkable to remember this guy's life and to study what we're going to look at here today because we are going to see God use people in the difficult and most darkest places. So turn with me, if you will, in your copy of the Scriptures, to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that God uses the strangest experiences to prepare ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God may put you in a place that you are screaming and yelling to get out of, just so he can use you in the most powerful and extraordinary way. And the worst thing that could befall you is to be delivered from what you're struggling against today. In the hands of God, God can do extraordinary things. So there is no such thing as an insignificant act or an insignificant person, because in this world, in the Christian life, everything counts everything, both your strengths and your advantages and your skills, as well as your weaknesses. God uses them all. So here we are in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we may uh, recall chapter 1. Chapter 1, just by way of review, we've got King Ahasuerus and he's preparing to go to war. And he's gathered all the people of his kingdom and uh, all the leaders and uh, the important influence people uh, to this great big party. And this party has been going on for days. And he's drunk. And he's a little prideful. And he's a bit arrogant. And he calls out for the queen. He says, get that crown on her and have her walk around in front of everybody so they can see how pretty my wife is. To which Queen Vashti simply responded... No. Well, when the whole world revolves around you and it doesn't go your way, you begin flailing your arms and somebody must pay for this. 
and his counselors jump in and say, you know what really happened here today is it's not so much that you were insulted, it's that everyone was insulted. And now wives everywhere, when you say, hey, can I have a sandwich? They're going to say, make it yourself. Don't you know what the queen did? And they just uh, went on making all these stories. And, uh, and basically they advised the king, you know, you've got to get rid of this one. I mean, if she's not going to do everything you say, you've got to get rid of her nonsense. But that's what he did. And again, we're going to see throughout this book, even this morning as we study chapter 2, those counselors speak and the king just jumps. And so the queen is gone. And when we come to chapter 2, the king begins to do a little memory search of what he's missed out on and what it's cost him to act so foolishly. So notice, we begin here in chapter 2 with the regret of the king. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed about her. And so the regret of the king, this regret resulted in sorrow over past decisions. And I would suggest to you that it would be true if I suggested that everyone in this room And perhaps even everyone on this planet has that decision that they made at some point that they regret. It's not that, uh, you know, we're we're, uh, suddenly uh, paralyzed in life because of it. And maybe some of us are. We couldn't possibly go forward because of what we did behind us. We're unable to overcome it. But every one of us certainly would like to keep that closet door closed of past events. And this king is no different. He made a foolish decision, and he knew it. And so this regret of the king resulted in sorrow over these past decisions. He remembered Vashti and what she had done, and then he remembered what he had done in response. And it wasn't so much what she had done that he had a problem with. It was how he had responded to it. And we could move into some marriage counseling right now, couldn't we? But we won't. We'll let the Spirit of God take care of that. And so here we are looking at the regret of the king. And that regret resulted in great sorrow over his past decisions. But that regret opened the door for suggestions for future happiness. Once again, in walk the counselors, and they say, we know the answer. It's us over here. King, listen. And here we have here is, uh, first off, what we would expect from these people, some bad decisions. How about this one? Get over the past. Forget about it. Yeah, you messed up. Just ignore it, and it'll go away. Again, I suggest to you that's bad decisions and bad counsel. How about we do this? We look at the past choices that we have made that we know are wrong, and we make them right. And we learn from them, and we go on wiser because of it. But not this king. His counselors, they they had some skin in this game now. You see, it was them who said, get rid of the king, or the queen, and the king did it. Now the king regrets it, and he's thinking, maybe I should bring the queen back. But you know what will happen if the queen comes back? All those counselors, well, they're going to lose their head over it. (laughs) And so they have some skin in this game. They're a little concerned at this point, and they they begin to offer suggestions. Hey, get over the past. 
Verse 2, the king's young man who attended him said, this is the idea here. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. You know what he needs is another gal. No, what he needs is a fixed heart. And it doesn't matter what person you set alongside him. He's going to mess it up until his heart is right. But the advice is to get over the past and uh, get a new wife. Yeah, that's the ticket. It's not, their, it's not your fault. It's their fault. Did I just say that's the ticket? I did. Oh, I'm sorry. My age is showing. <laughs> and, and isn't that the way we are today, though? We are a throwaway society. If things get difficult, out the back door and get a new one. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's a a house, whether it's an electrical fan that works so well and we really liked it. I mean, it really moved fan, you know, the air around in our living room and until that fateful day that it stopped. And I said, no, we will not buy a new fan. We will keep this one. So we gave it to the wisest electrician that we could find. And he said, it's time for a funeral. This fan is dead. (sighs) And it seems that everything is made in this life to be thrown away. And what a horrible culture it is when everything's a toss away, when everything is no different than that first pancake. And you know what I'm talking about. The first pancake is made to be thrown away. Don't be the first pancake, friends, and don't look at others that way either. If there's a problem, look inside instead of into someone else's eyes. And so this... uh, these counselors, they're saying, you got to get a new wife. And so let the king, and here's the, here's the, uh, uh, the strategy, this regret, this regret that uh, resulted in sorrow over past decisions, and this regret that opened door for suggested happiness, Re- uh, this regret now convinces him of a strategy to find a new wife, because he figured if we could just replace this woman, then we would just be all happy, wouldn't we? No, friends, look inside first. Look inside first. And here's the plan. Verse 3, appoint some scouts. And let the king appoint some officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem of the, uh, in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And so you've got to get some guys out there looking around because you know what? If you really want to be happy, your wife is going to be beautiful. Now, if that was true, I'd be the happiest guy on the planet. And I very, may, very well maybe. I don't know. But uh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy. But you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is not on the outside. The issue is on the inside. The outside tends to draw us, but it's the inside that keeps us or pushes us away, friends. The inside is what counts. The inside is what makes it last. And so appoint some scouts. And then, and then we've got to give them some beauty treatments. And let their cosmetics be given to them. And listen to this plan here, you know. Uh, let, let, uh, let, let's uh, let the young women who please the Lord be queen instead of Ashtis. Yeah, yeah, so we'll, we'll find the pretty ones, and then we'll make them smell good and, you know, cover up all the stuff that doesn't look so good, and then maybe the king will be happy. The whole thing is nonsense. If you're reading this and going, oh, that may be a good good idea to find a wife. I've got to get my brothers to look out there and help me. No, this is, this is foolish, my friends foolishness. And yet, it is the wisdom of God to use the foolishness of men. 
And what is happening right now in this book as we're like, what is wrong with these people? I think they're just as selfish and as sinful as you can imagine. And yet God is stirring the pot. Remember, in this, this, uh, this letter here, this, uh, this book of Esther, the name God, the word God is not mentioned at all. Uh, uh, the name of God not, does not appear anywhere, but the finger of God is stirring people up. He's moving people around, adjusting the pieces on the table to accomplish something wonderful. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the plan is to take her for a test drive. I mean, they're in, let the king, uh, the young woman who pleases the king, be queen. You know, bring her in, make her smell good, and cover up the yucky stuff. And, you know, if the king, then we'll all be happy, as if that's all it takes. Hmm. That's why marriages are, are so at risk today, because people think, if I could just be happy, and right now you make me happy, so I'm going to dispense you to be, make me happy the rest of my life. And that's your job. You are now my wife or my husband. Now make me happy. I'm not happy, and it's your fault, and now I'm angry at you. And we've missed the whole point. It is, it is no different than in the church. When we come into the church, it is not for everyone to do everything for us. It is for us to now have someone to invest in, to see how God can use us in the life of someone else. When you married your husband or your wife, or you're getting married, <laughs> you must commit your heart to this, that God has chosen me to be the scalpel in his hand for him to chip away that which is in Christ in this person's life and for me to encourage and build up that which is. That's marriage, friends. Paul says it's the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And you know what the result of this, of these actions and satis- you know, sacrifices are? Joy and happiness and wonder. Not so much these folks. They're all looking out for themselves. And nobody's going to be happy when everyone looks out for themselves. And so we see this, uh, this regret of the king from good to worse to bad to even badder. I know that's not a word either, but you know what I'm saying here. And then we have the replacing of the queen. So we got the plan in place. Let's, let's make it happen here. And notice here in verse 5, now there, there was a Jew in Susa with a citadel whose name was Mordecai, uh, the son of uh, Jar, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Does that sound familiar? Kish, Benjamite, first king of Israel, Saul, <sighs> who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And so uh, we, we have this, this picture painted of the circumstances under which all of these things are happening. Up until this time, the Jews haven't even been mentioned. We don't have God in it. We don't have the nation of Israel in it. We're like, what is this, just you know, world history? You know, a little soap opera of history? And suddenly, God's people are on the scene. You see, this, this takes place, as we mentioned last week. It takes place during the 70-year exile. Because of the sin of Israel, God had taken them out of the land. 
And while they're out of the land, God is still at work in their midst. And here's Mordecai. You know, and we find uh, this, this uh, preparation of a gal we're about to meet named Esther. It begins with some difficult circumstances. Is that now how God met you? Is that now how God drew you to himself? There was an issue in your life. Perhaps it was devastating. Perhaps it was just this ongoing dig in your side or hollowness in your heart. And you were chasing after something, and one thing after another led to disappointment and emptiness. You were searching, and that's where God met you. And here are these difficult circumstances in which we meet a man named Mordecai. And we notice uh, this was part of the preparation of Esther, is this, uh, this man named Mordecai. This loving relative here, verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Difficult circumstances, what had happened? An orphaned young girl, perhaps lost in the exile. We don't know the rest of the story, but we know this story is that God is at work. Difficult circumstances, but the benefit of a loving relative. Physical beauty, I notice here. The young woman, verse 7 tells us, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. A loving, caring, relative, family member looking after her. Difficult circumstances, but certainly the benevolence of God and His providence working around. So when the king's order, verse 8, and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And so suddenly the favor of God is on this young woman in this most difficult of circumstances. It's not enough that her, she's been yanked out of her home living in this exile. You know, perhaps she was born in exile. Her, her parents are gone she, while she has a family member loving and caring for her, she is now taken from his arms and into a foreign king's palace. But God, just like in the book of Genesis and the story of the account of Joseph, that Joseph found favor in the eyes of all that he came in contact with. And this is happening with Esther. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And so even in a difficult spot, God is caring for for her. Well, we see the divine preparation of Esther here, followed by a providential selection of Esther Esther had not known her people or kindred for, or made known uh, her kind, people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, 
And when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to this king's palace. It is the most despicable of all beauty contests. And we don't know, but we can only imagine what these defiled kings would have done with these women while they were in. What did they go with? Were they dressed? Were they, were they test-ridden? Uh, it is a despicable thing to think about in the circumstance in which she finds herself. But Esther had a great presentation before the queen, or the king, I'm sorry. And in the evening she would go in. In the morning she would return to second harem in custody. And, uh, and the strategy that Esther chose here in verse 15 was this. And when the turn came from Esther, the daughter of Abahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, this seems to be emphasized over and over and over again. Hmm. She asked for nothing. Now, the, these gals had the option of anything. You choose it, you get it. When you go to the king, pick anything. But Esther's strategy was different. She simply said this. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. I'm in no position to know what I ought to ask for. That happens in our prayer life sometimes too, doesn't it? A person in need. Like, God, I'm not the answer, and I know you are, but I don't know what's best for this circumstance. And here Esther says this, You choose for me what I should take. A wise decision for this man would surely know the king. And the strategy worked. Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It is uh, perhaps the female version of, of the account of Joseph taken away at an early, snatched away, imprisoned, made to be used as someone else determined, and now she's the queen. From the position of a, an exiled young lady, far from home, her parents are gone, to the throne. She is queen, perhaps not as honorable as Joseph, but nonetheless, God has stirred the pot and he has moved the pieces. And now Esther is in the throne room. Well, the king throws a celebration here in verse 18. The king gave another great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces, and he gave gifts with royal generosity. Apparently, he was feeling quite happy and generous. And now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and Esther had not been known or made known her kindred or her people, once again keeping all of this quiet, just as Mordecai, her uncle's cousin of whatever had, uh, had instructed her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. That one's easy to miss. We continue to learn about this young lady who beauty is not seeming to be the most important thing to her. She listened carefully and obeyed 
the one who cared for her. She asked for instruction for those who would know more than her. She had learned obedience and therefore became usable in the hands of God. Now, as if nothing more than a footnote, we have this account here at the end of chapter 2 that is absolutely essential as we continue on with the story of Esther. It is the rescue of a king. We've seen the regret of the king and the replacement of the queen, but here we see the rescue of the king. First of all, we notice uh, here in verse 21 the conspiracy in the court. It was maybe perhaps over the selection of Esther. Tradition uh, tells us that uh, normally the queen was selected from one of seven different families. Perhaps there was uh, some jealousy, some animosity. Whatever the case is, friends, we notice that in those days that Mordecai was sitting as the king's gate, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, Hazarus. But notice there was a discovery of the plot, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Verse 23, the discovery of the plot leads to the death of the conspirators. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And here at the end of verse 23, it is put in a file to be taken out later at the most instrumental of times. So so perhaps in your copy of the Scriptures, if it's on paper, and it was really meant to be on paper, so you could underline it, you know. And this is a good one to circle right here. You know, it may be from page to page you draw an arrow because it's pulled out at the most instrumental of times. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Hmm. And in this one instance, perhaps Ahasuerus is most like our God. There is not a deed that goes unnoticed. And the way that you sacrifice and the way that you serve and the way that you look out for others and that time you spend praying for one another, praying for the church, praying for loved ones in harm's way, every deed is noticed by the King of Kings. And there will be a day that the folder will be opened and rewards will be in plenty where God will honor even the, the smallest of deeds that you have done in his name for the good of others. So friends, God is at work in this story. Things begun to unravel right from the beginning and now God begins to place them in order. And right now you're like, well, what happens next? Here's the good news. You already got a copy of the Bible. Read it. You can find out. And there's no commercials to interrupt it along the way. It is a wondrous thing. But this book of Esther, it is one of the, the most wondrous books to see the providential working of God, to work in the heart of a king, to direct him as he should go, to bring about the end that he would have. So, friends, God providentially works through people, places, and problems, including yours, to prepare you for great acts of service.
What is it that God is doing right now in your life? Rearranging the pieces. Sanding off some rough edges. Preparing you for something extraordinary. And so as you go through the difficulties, don't forget that God is up to something as opposed to just being absent. God is preparing you for something extraordinary. So make sure you take time to thank God for the difficulties that come into life. Because none of it is wasted. All of it for your good and for His glory. I think there's a verse in Romans that says something about all things working together for good. To those who love that love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. And God has a purpose in your life for your life. Don't miss it. Find joy in those difficult circumstances, knowing that if He's working on you, He's not done with you. God will do extraordinary things, providentially working through people, places, problems in your life to prepare you for the great acts of service. So, Ask God to make you usable. You want to see greatness? Ask God to use you. But if you're going to ask God to use you, then friends, you ought to anticipate circumstances that will prepare you and move you into a place of service. It can be scary. Movements and eruptions, the foundations begin to shake, and you don't know where you're going. But one thing you know for certain, he's the one who's taking you there, and that his purposes are good, and you can trust him with your whole life. Ask God to make you usable. Anticipate these circumstances that will prepare you and move you into a place of service. Don't fear the changes. Don't fear the obstacles. Embrace them as the tool of God to make you and conform you to the character of Christ for His glory, for your good, and the good of those around you. Let's pray. Father, we are not quick to thank You for the difficulties of life. Because, Lord, we would confess we have often misunderstood them. But, God, in the quietness of a heart and the understanding of what your word tells us, illustrates for us here in this book, that all things are working together for us because we love you and because you have a purpose for us. So, God, we thank you for the trying times the large obstacles that we want to run away from, but you carry us through. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.